Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. <laughs> Here's a simple question. What happens when you step into the darkness and turn on the light? Yeah, the darkness flees in the poetic language, or you can see, <laughs> is another way to say it. Um, one of the themes that we haven't been following in the Gospel of John, because we've been talking about encountering Jesus, um, and you can't talk about everything, but John goes on and on about this, is that Jesus is the light. He picks this up in John chapter 1 and, and carries it through in subtle ways until you get to John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, Jesus just straight up says to all of the people, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And, um, and so when you encounter Jesus, you are encountering the light. And all that you think about when you go into the darkness and you turn on the light, whether you use the more poetic language of the darkness fleeing, or you think about the practical fact that when you turn on the light you can see, these are some of the things that come out in the stories of encountering Jesus. And nowhere more than where we are today in John chapter 9. And that's intentional on the part of John, who put the gospel together. First, Jesus will tell you, I am the light of the world. And then you'll get a story that shows you what that looks like. And that's the story we're in today. We're in John chapter 9. And, and what happens when you meet, when you encounter the light of the world? I, this is one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of John, though I like them all. Um, but I find this one quite funny at parts. Um, there's, there's a number of places where there are comic elements in this. And the story does occupy the entire chapter, John 9, all 41 verses. And that's what we're going to read. So I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the word. So please go ahead and do that. But I am going to also say that if, as we're reading this, you need to sit down, it's okay. There's no contest. There's no shame. There's no, like, you do what you got to do. That's totally fine. You're standing to honor the word. But God more than recognizes and makes his allowance for the fact that we're human beings. And um, for some of us, this is going to be too long to stand while we read. And that is okay. So you're not dishonoring God if you have to sit down in the middle of this. So here we go, John chapter 9. This is the story of Jesus encountering a man blind from birth. So as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud 
and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born or had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, <laughs> I don't know if you guys could hear that. <laughs> Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would open our eyes this morning to you, that we would see and that we would know 
that you would draw us into your presence and meet us as we study your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So there's a long story. There's a lot going on here. It all starts out with a question, though. And I wanted to talk about questions for a minute because I don't know if you've noticed this. Questions are pretty powerful. The way you ask a question will determine how you get your answer or even what answer you get, right? If you ask the question, what went wrong, you're going to find answers for all the things that went wrong. If you look at the same event, the same instance, the same day, and you say what went right, you're going to find things that went right. One of the long-time kind of Christian practices is known as the examine, where at the end of the day, you spend some time reflecting, and you ask yourself some of those kinds of questions. Where was I present to God today? Where did I notice Him at work? Uh, where was I forgetful of God today? Um, where, where did I lose track of my real calling where was I exercising my gifts? It, things like this. And there's, there, you know, there's no set questions per se. But the idea is that you ask some questions about the goodness of the day and some questions of where maybe you were distracted, busy, or sinning and need conviction over that so that you are aware of both. Because most of the time, most of us are biased in one direction or the other. We tend to only ask one kind of of question, and therefore we tend to only get one kind of answer. Another thing, thinking about questions, um, I have young children, and so I get asked why a lot. <laughs> and that's okay, because kids need to ask why questions, and there's nothing wrong with why questions. Um, but I was thinking about why questions, and there's two kinds of why questions. There's the why question where you're asking about the cause. Why did the pipes freeze? right? What caused this event to happen? And there are the why questions where you're asking about purpose. What, what is the goal of this particular activity? And you typically only ask them in certain contexts. So you ask a cause question when something has happened that's, you know, you don't understand it, it's out of your control, it wasn't a decision, right? The pipes didn't freeze because they were tired of giving you water, they didn't freeze because they needed a break or, or a Sabbath or any... There was no purpose behind this. The pipes froze because the insulation was bad, because it was minus 50, because whatever the case may be, right? We ask cause questions when there's agency, when there's will, when there's some deciding factor there. So we had, um, during that cold snap, we were on the street that one of the water mains burst and we were out of water for a couple of days. And, so, and you can ask of the water main, well, why did it burst? And you can ask of the workers, why are they working? Why are they out there digging up the street, right? And one of those, you're going to get a cause answer. And one of those, you're going to get a purpose answer. Why are they digging up the street? To fix the water main. Now, you could answer that with a cause. Why are they digging up their street? Their boss told them to. The, the pipes froze, whatever. But the real purpose of it is they want to restore services. Okay, so we've talked about questions for a minute. Now, verse 2. The disciples look at this man, blind from birth, and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, what kind of question is this? Just actually think about this for a minute. Um, they assume they already know the reason for his blindness. 
Within their worldview, suffering is the result of sin. And so, in a real sense, both the cause and the purpose are clear to them to an extent. The cause is sin. The purpose is judgment. Because if all suffering is a result of sin, then this is the way that God is working in the world. And what they're asking is for a more detailed cause. We know this was caused by sin. Whose sin caused this? Which I always, I, I think of that as an already ridiculous question. Like, what did you do before you were born if it was your sin? I don't know what kind of concept they had of babies in the womb. I mean, they know they're there. But what are they doing that's like, oh man, you really messed up while you were still in your mom's stomach? Because this wouldn't have happened if you hadn't have been so awful in there. Um, I'm not sure what answer they expected, but what they're doing is what we all do. They're trying to make sense of a world that often doesn't make sense. Why should anybody be born blind? Like, what baby deserves that? And yet, here they are trying to say, well, he must have. Things don't happen that people don't deserve. So it's his fault or his parents' fault. It has to be. And not for the first time, Jesus stands directly against this worldview. He challenges their question rather than answering it. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. You are wrong about the cause. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. You are also wrong about the purpose. You're wrong about both. You are looking for the sin that is at the root of this suffering, and I want you to look for the glory that will result from it. And to be clear, Jesus is not saying God struck him blind so that later he could heal him and look good. <laughs> that's not the message here, and that's not what it means, even though in English you could interpret it that way. What he's saying is this isn't an opportunity for you to find the sin that caused this. This is an opportunity for you to see God at work. Because what happens when you turn the light on in the darkness? The darkness flees. You can see again. And Jesus is the light of the world who has stepped into a place where things don't make sense and he's going to make sense of them again. Not by telling you the cause of all suffering. Not by answering the problem of evil. But by working for good. By doing something in the midst of that world. There's an argument around the kind of argument of evil, this whole problem, that if you could explain evil, either the evil isn't really evil or the explanation isn't really good because evil doesn't make sense. That's the problem. That's the point. It's not supposed to. Sense is a good thing. Being able to put something in its place and make it fit, that's right and good, and you can't do that with something that isn't right and good. There is no place for darkness in a room filled with light. And so we look forward to that day when the light of God will be fully present at the return of Jesus. And in the meantime, Jesus comes in and gives us the example of the shining the light where we can. And so in the midst of this kind of discourse that he's having with his 
It's a very philosophical discourse, even though I've made more of it than there is here in John. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He's having this discourse with his disciples. Meanwhile, he's spitting into the dirt to make mud and smear it on this guy's face, who I don't know what that would have been like, because he's hearing all of this, right? And is he hearing Jesus like gather up some spittle, and then I don't know what that's going to sound like through the mic, so I won't make that noise. <laughs> you guys know that sound. Like, is he wondering what's going on? Jesus isn't explaining this. Like, is, does he have a friend there with him who's like, and he's like, what's going on? He's spitting on the ground. He's going to rub it on your, oh, it's on your face. Um, and, then, and then he tells the man something he probably didn't need to hear, which is go wash. Like, what was, he, I was going to leave it there? just kind of sit here for a while with this spit mud on my face? Of course I'm going to wash. Um, okay, so, that's, so this is where, in verse 6, this is where the comic elements begin, and they're all throughout this story. Um, and I could spend a long time just pointing them out and making us laugh. <laughs> because it is, it's ridiculous. He goes and he comes back and he can see, and most of the time when Jesus performs a miracle... People are amazed, right? They stand back and they, they praise the Lord God who does amazing things and they're awestruck. The blind man comes back and they're like, hey, wasn't this that guy? No, no, there's no way he was that guy. He just looks the same. No, I'm sure it's the guy. Well, let's ask him. I'm the guy. I'm totally the guy. I don't know, right? And then they send him to the Pharisees and the Pharisees have to hear his story three times and they have to check with his parents. And I love the way they ask the question is this your son who you say was blind? Like, have you been tricking us for 30 years, pretending he was blind so that when the right guy came along, you could pull the biggest con ever? Um, like, what are they expecting them to say, right? And the story is one... So this is your summary of this story. The story is one of a man learning how to see. His physical sight is given to him when he washes in the pool of Siloam. He goes, he washes, he comes home seeing. And you, I, I can picture him rejoicing in that. But as the story goes on, he begins to see more and more. At the beginning, he's talking about Jesus, and it's the man they call Jesus. That's all he knows. That's all there is to it. But as he has this conversation with the Pharisees, he goes deeper and deeper. Who is he? He made you see. What do you say? Well, he was a, he's a prophet. And then later on in the conversation, and I heard some of us laughing as we even read the verses, because he says, like, I've told you, you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples too? Right? So he's gone from, there's this man called Jesus, some guy, to he's a prophet, to I'm his disciple. And then at the end of the story, Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Which is, and we've talked as we've gone through this series already about the titles of Jesus in a number of sermons where we've talked about him as, as rabbi and as prophet and as Messiah, the coming king of Israel, and as the Son of Man, which is this title that starts to speak of his divine identity, that he is God himself. And so he's giving a, an amazing revelation to this man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, who is he that I could believe in him? And Jesus' answer is, always, I've always found it a little funny. It's like, well, you've seen him. He's speaking to you right now. You can't just say it's me, but I guess not. 
And then he worships. And Jesus accepts worship from this man. Again, it's this incredible moment. And what what you're seeing, what we're seeing as we read this, is this, this man learned to see Jesus for who he is. And every step of the way, he sees a little bit more. Because each of these things is true. It is a man called Jesus. He is a prophet. He is a rabbi who has disciples, and he is the son of man. And at the same time, acting as a foil for this man who had been born blind are the Pharisees, who see less and less as the story goes on. Because at the beginning of the story, when they enter the tale in verse 13, um, they're asking questions. They are asking, well, how did you receive his sight? Um, like, what's, what's going on here? But the further in the, they go, the more they claim to know, right? And so there's, I think it's four times they say something they know about Jesus, three times. Three times the blind man confesses his ignorance, and three times the Pharisees make confident statements about what they know about Jesus. This man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath, they declare. And then eight verses later, in verse 24, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. And then in verse 29, we know that God spoke through Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Um, And And they start out, they seem to be legitimately curious and open to something going on, but by the end, they have declared, we know he's a sinner, we know he's not from God. And there's this ironic statement in the middle, give, speak the truth, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. Because the whole story turns on the ability of the people in it to see the glory of God. The disciples at the very beginning, they're looking for the sin that has caused this. And Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look for the glory of God that will result from it. The man born blind begins the story unable to see anything and gives more and more glory to God as the story goes on to the point where at the very end, as Jesus reveals to him who he is, he worships. He's so caught up in the glory of the person of Jesus, that he he falls down and worships him. And the Pharisees are so caught up in the fact that this didn't look like what it was supposed to because he healed on the Sabbath, that they can't see the glory of God at all and are trying to say the same thing as the disciples at the beginning, give glory to God, we know he's a sinner. We know there's sin at the root of this. Each person in this story has to deal with attention. The disciples are wrestling with the tension of suffering in a world ruled by a loving God. And they, in order to deal with that tension, are making the assumption that all suffering must have a just cause. Because how else can you make sense of this? The blind man is wrestling with the tension of his lack of knowledge, right? He's blind. He doesn't see. And all throughout, he's got to I don't know who this guy is. I don't know how he healed me. Well, he's a prophet. Well, and he's wrestling towards seeing the light. The Pharisees are wrestling with a tension between the fact that opening a man's eyes who had been born blind is a sign of the kingdom of God and the coming Messiah. And they know this. This is Isaiah. Multiple passages in Isaiah 
Isaiah prophesies about the day of the Lord and the return of the king and about the awesome kingdom that is coming and how in that day the blind will receive their sight. And it's never happened before. So the fact that it's happening here, it's like, is this the guy? That's the one side. But the other side is Jesus doesn't do this the way he's supposed to. And this is, again, it's not the first time he's run into the Pharisees and had troubles with the Sabbath and the fact that he doesn't seem to be obeying the word of God. And so how do they solve that tension? They're going to ignore the sign and they're just going to condemn him in his sin. And by the end of the story, they have come to the same conclusion that the disciples started with. They run the man out of the synagogue. You were steeped in sin at birth. Why do they say that? You were born blind. You had to be steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. And the same thing his parents feared. The Jews had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be thrown out of the synagogue, right? And this caused them to throw their son under the bus a little bit. He's of age, ask him. He can talk for himself. Keep us out of this. The same thing his parents feared happens to their son. The thing that they were trying to avoid happens to him. And one of the things we miss sometimes in this story is that this story began with a man in suffering. He's blind. He's been blind from birth. It ends with that same man suffering. But now he's suffering rejection. He's being ostracized. To be kicked out of the synagogue is no small thing in a community where everybody is going to know that this has happened to you, where this is your social network and your safety net, where the people that you know and love and your family and friends, they're all part of this same thing, where the most respected and looked up to people in your society have decided that you are not good company, that you are not fit to be around, and therefore you are not welcome in the place of worship and study. Right? This is not little that this man faces this. And while Jesus intervenes to give sight to him in his blindness... He does not intervene to give acceptance or welcome to him in the midst of his rejection. He doesn't fix that problem. He welcomes him into his own fellowship, right? And I, I don't know, we are not told. I like to imagine that he becomes one of those 70 or 100 and whatever who follow Jesus around, this man who was born blind, but who knows? Who knows? What we do know is that he has learned the lesson that Jesus has been trying to teach, which is that in the midst of our lives, we should have our eyes open to the light, to the glory of God. That's the question that this man is learning to ask and to answer. Where is the glory of God in his blindness? And where is the glory of God in his rejection? He is given an opportunity that many Christians over the centuries have longed for, which is the opportunity to publicly stand up for the name of Jesus, right? And he goes so far, I don't know what the tone of his voice was, he sounds like he's mocking the Pharisees by the end of this passage, right? 
We know that God spoke through Moses. We don't even know where this guy comes from. And the man born blind says, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, but he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to godly men. And nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. So if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's lecturing the Pharisees. He's telling them all the things that they should know, right? And he gets this opportunity to give that kind of glory to God. And we don't even see him bothered by the fact that he's thrown out of the synagogue because he's thrown out of the synagogue for what I think he would consider and what I know I would consider a very good reason. He stood up for the name of Jesus. He's taken from one suffering into another and told, in this one you fight. And in this one you look for the glory of God. And he does it. He actually does what the Pharisees ironically tell him to do. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner, right? But he does give glory to God in refusing exactly that second sentence. He can't be. He can't be a sinner if he's done this. Not like this. It doesn't work that way, guys. It's no accident that in the midst of that, in the midst of his willingness to stand up for the name of Jesus, he is given deeper revelation into who Jesus is. Not because Jesus in our lives or anybody else's stands around waiting. Are you going to stand up for me? Are you going to stand up for me? Okay, you stood up for me. Now I can do something good. But because when we are willing to stand, we are able, we are open to the truth. We've put ourselves in a position where we've decided we want him, and he always answers that desire of our hearts. God always meets us when we seek him. By the very act of standing up for Jesus, he's chosen to respond to persecution as Jesus has directed. Here is an opportunity for the glory of God. And this is where the challenge comes to each of us. We don't get any promises as to how these stories will end. He stood up for Jesus. He still got kicked out of the synagogue. That's, it sucks. Would have been much better if the Pharisees had stopped and been like, you know what, you're right. We should become his disciples. That would have been awesome. That would have been so much better. But it didn't work that way. We only get to decide how we act in the story not how the story ends. Now, let me stop there. The ultimate end of the story is written. It is promised and it is good that Jesus has won the victory and we will experience the fullness of his glory and his light in the kingdom of God when he returns. But all the, all the shorter stories along the way, like standing up in a synagogue and maybe getting kicked out, we don't get to decide how those end. There's lots of actors involved in those. But we do get to decide what questions we're asking and which answers we're living. And so I would challenge us, in whatever the circumstances are in our lives, to look for the glory of God and to look for opportunities to stand up for the name of Jesus. To do that and to find, like him here in this story, that in that the glory of God is revealed. Now, I don't want to pretend that's easy. I don't know what that felt like for, for this man 
who was born blind in this story. Um, I think if it was me, it would happen so quickly that it would only be afterwards. You'd be like, what did I just do? <laughs> how, how did that happen? Oh, my goodness. And then I'd be lying awake at night thinking about all the other things I could have said. Or being really happy, being like, oh, I showed them, right? Where you run over conversations again and again in your mind. Um, so it's not necessarily easy. It's also not, to speak grace into this, about getting it perfectly right every time. I love how in this story, he doesn't know a lot. He's not able to stand before them and say, here's the Messiah, here's the Son of Man. You don't understand, you're rejecting the light of the world. Like He doesn't know any of that. He's not there yet, right? He starts off the conversation, he's like, he's just a, some guy named Jesus. He's a prophet, I think, right? Um, so when you're in these situations and you get to stand up, you do your best. You don't have to get it perfect. That's okay. Um, this man, I admire him in the midst of this. He's quite humble. He's not defending himself. He's defending Jesus. Not, not worried about what's going to happen to him. And I think that he can be that way so quickly because he's been blind his whole life. This takes us to the end of the story where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees again. He says, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him and they asked, What, are we blind too? And Jesus' answer is a little bit haunting. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. If you admitted if you understood your real situation, then you, like this man born blind, would receive the gift of sight. Your sins would be covered over. You would see who I am and know what's going on. But because you claim to see already, you're not open to the answers that Jesus is giving. You're not open to the lessons that he is teaching. The man who'd been born blind has been humbled by his blindness for his whole life. And now that he can see, he can continue to be humble before Jesus and before the Pharisees in the synagogue. The Pharisees are so, they have so much riding on the fact that they have to know what's going on because they're the experts. They're the ones everybody looks up to. They've got to know, but they don't. And because they have to know while they don't, they never actually will. They're hanging on to this and they can't let go of it to receive the actual truth. And so as we seek those opportunities to stand up, and as we look for the glory of God, we need to be humble in that too. Sometimes we think we know, but God is ever doing a new thing. You can know who he is. His character never changes. But you're not often going to be able to predict how he acts. Nobody standing with that blind man would have said, hey, here comes Jesus. I know how he does this. He's going to spit in the mud and rub it, rub it on your face, right? Like, it's the only time he does that. It's different every time he heals someone. Um, and it's a little different every time he meets us, but it's always good. There's a lot in this passage, um, and I've talked about being humble, and I've talked about looking for the glory of God, and I've talked about the questions we asked, and I've challenged us to stand up for the name of Jesus and to give glory to him.
Um, because the story is so long, I didn't find a neat way to summarize this at the end. Wherever you are in this journey, what I want for each of us and what I want for myself is for us to see more, to be more in the light of the world, that is, more in Jesus. And so I'm just going to conclude by praying that over us this morning. Lord God, I thank you that you are the light of the world. I thank you that you shine, that you do not leave us in darkness. We can choose darkness, and I pray that we wouldn't. Pray that none of us, myself included, none of us would ever make that choice, Lord God. But then when you shine your light, we would choose to step into it, to see your glory, to walk with you, and to stand up for your name. And give us opportunities to do that, Lord God. In your name we pray. Amen.